Welcome to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive, featuring conversations with performing artists and industry influencers on what it takes to succeed in the arts. I am your host, Diane Foy, and I believe that you really can make a living from your creative talents. As a publicist, podcaster, and coach, my mission is to educate, motivate, and empower you to thrive with authenticity, creativity, and purpose. Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. I'm very excited about my guest today. So excited to talk to him. Michael DeBar is a European marquee, raised in England, living in Los Angeles. He's appeared in over 150 hours of American television, including roles on MacGyver, Seinfeld, and Roseanne. That list goes on for decades because, you know, he's always popping up on my television as well as more than 40 feature films, including To Sir With Love, with Sidney Poitier. And he has sold over 7 million albums as both a recording artist and songwriter, beginning with his days as the frontman for such seminal 70s bands as Silverhead and Detective, a band personally signed by Jimmy Page to Led Zeppelin's Swan Song Records. Michael was also the touring singer for Duran Duran's spin-off project, The Power Station, performing at the iconic Live Aid concert. From 82 to 84, he was a member of Checkered Past, which included Steve Jones from The Sex Pistols, Clem Burke, and Nigel Harrison of Blondie. In 83, he penned Obsession. Everyone knows that song. It became a number one hit in 27 countries for L.A. new wave group Animotion. The track continues to be featured on countless movies, television shows, and commercials. At 72 years old, he is an active musician, actor, writer, and now DJ as he starts his weekday mornings hosting the Michael DeBar program on Little Steven's Underground Garage on Sirius XM Radio. A documentary on his life has just been released called Who Do You Want Me To Be? And you can watch that on Amazon. And that's only a part of his fascinating story. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm very excited to chat with you. Well, here we are, darling. There's my spectacular microphone voice let's do it diane well i i could listen to you for hours me too i'm gonna i chat with myself all the time so the documentary was really great oh great i'm so glad you oh my goodness me amazon prime i mean there's so many incredible reviews all five star reviews it's really extraordinary what happened oh wonderful yeah so how does it feel to have like this documentary about you? It seems perfectly natural to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've had such an extraordinary life. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, the thing is, if you don't, if you are the person and you're experiencing these things and you're trying to stay alive and enjoy yourself and various things are, are absolutely wonderful victories and triumphs and, and a lot of negative action. And if you can survive both of those things, you transcend both of those things. You know, I, I've come to a place where I'm not really aiming 
at anything. I've spent my entire life aiming at that bullseye, you know, but that target shifts. Right. And, you know, you're 100 yards from it, you're a thousand miles from it, but I'll be damned if that arrow doesn't hit that bullseye. You know? And I think that it's that determination that has uh, you know, allowed me to have this longevity, this, this um, extraordinary 56 years of, uh, of posing. it's a a glorious gift and uh, i worked with this guy josh weinstein on some tv show he's a writer and he said you know i followed your stuff this is like 20 years ago to maybe 15 something 10 maybe some time ago and uh, he said i'd love to do a documentary on you i'm just beginning to you know get my chops together um on film and and he did you know, he did, he made it, he sorted out, he found all that footage. I didn't look at a frame of it until it was done, Diane, you know, so I trusted him that much. Right. You didn't want to, you weren't protective of your story. No, absolutely not. I've never been. It is what it is. Right. Did you learn anything from the film? Yes, that I was really handsome. You are, yeah. <laughs> Very and, handsome. And I'm a great believer in lighting, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, I learned a lot. I learned that, you know, I, I never, ever, um, you know, spend weeks in bed when something doesn't work. I, you know, I have a few hours sleep and I get up and I do it all over again. Or, or I do it in a new way and come to it from a different angle. You know, um, I have no sense of um, my ego being threatened because I really, at the end of the day, although I might appear to be the world's greatest narcissist, I'm not. I just want to do the work and I want to have fun and I want to express myself. I don't care if it's a guitar or Hamlet and I've done both, you know, Uh, and it's all the same. People say, hey, MTV, which you prefer? Do you prefer acting or do you prefer music? And I say, I just want to express myself. It doesn't really matter what, in what medium. You know, I've just written this book of poetry called Free Association, and it's just, just that. It's about just absolutely explicitly writing down what you're feeling at that moment. And I've lived a life of being in that moment. Right. This podcast is, is mainly directed towards musicians and actors. Um, I'm a publicist and coach, and I help them thrive. So um, talking to someone like you is inspiration. So if you have any lessons to spread on to up-and-comers, that would be amazing. Yes, I do. I have a simple lesson, and that's to tell the truth. Right. If you're a songwriter, I'll explain that. If you're a songwriter and you choose a subject to write about, it's not going to work. The subject has to choose you. So when I wrote Obsession, I was just getting off heroin and I was obsessed clearly with a narcotic. Now being owned by something uh, is dreadful. You have to own it. And the only way you can do that is to tell the truth. So every song and every line as an actor, you've got to be honest. You can't fool anybody. This is the thing. I think a lot of entertainers, as it were, and actors and actresses and rock and roll musicians, they look down upon their audience. They just see them as one thing. It's not. It's hearts beating. Everybody. When I did Live Aid and I looked out and I saw 80,000 people, I tried to think of the individuality. And I'm not going to lie to those. I'm just going to have a good time trying to remember the words 
And <laughs> since I had to learn them so quickly, you know, the power station at Live Aid. Um, and I just sing to one person, you know, and I'll pick people out. It's the same thing. So just be honest. Don't bullshit yourself, you know. Listen. Listen. If a director says, no, man, you know, try it this way, do it. Don't argue. You know, art is a collaborative experience. So be a team player. And you might be wrong. Good heavens. <laughs> you know, what a shock, you know. And uh, you might get it right. Or you might get it right first time. Either way, be open and honest. What drew you when you were young? Like, what made you, did you always want to be a musician or an actor? What drew you to that world? I only ever entertained the idea of entertaining. Do you understand? Right. There was nothing else. There was no, oh, I think I'll be a bricklayer. You know, oh, uh, yeah, opera. I'll be an opera. I didn't even think that way. At 16, I was into So Would Love. I didn't, you know, I went to these boarding schools, horrible experience. Came out of there, went to drama school. Two weeks, I was into So Would Love. It, nothing, I, no, I didn't plan anything. It just happened. Because I was open, ready. I think that's it. You have to be, uh, a lot of things seem to have happened to you in your career. Um, but you have to be ready for those opportunities. I've always said, you know, in terms of physical exercise, it's very important to be in good shape, you know, to be physically in good shape because your mind will destroy everything. <laughs> right. So eating well, working out is everything. Um, and the art will come to you. If you're in a good physical space, you know, the art and the, the, the scene as an actor or the song will come. You have to trust it. All the great songs I've written, the hits that I've written, I've written in 10 minutes. Has there been songs that you worked on for long periods of time? No, never. I don't work on anything for long periods of time. No. <laughs> That's why I call it free association, which my radio program is three hours every day to five million listeners. I don't plan anything. You know, and these songs are Stephen Van Zandt's incredible playlist. And so there's a lot of repetition, but so is a mantra. If you think of The Temptations and you listen to a Temptation song, you will think it a different thing about it You know, every time you hear it. Because art shifts as you shift. It grows. It changes. Nothing remains still or static in music. You know, so um, I'll know immediately what to say because I'm feeling it. So if I just express myself with all this, you know, I'm 72, so I've heard these songs a thousand times and I will hopefully hear them another thousand times. You get sick of your own songs? Darling, are you insane? Of course not. I get sick of my own songs? No. You hear that sometimes with musicians. They're like, can I, do I have to play the song one more time? Well, that's bullshit and fuck off. You know, go get another job, you stupid asshole. That's what I say. Are you kidding me? I'm not fucking into that. I, I'm proud of everything I do, even if it sucks. Right. You know, because I did it. That is a dreadful, dread, I can't even imagine. I've never met a performer that I respected that would say that. I'm tired of playing Jumping Jack Flash. Get Mick Jagger would never in a million years say that, nor would Keith, nor would the greats. 
The greats are proud of what they've done. Mm-hmm. And they've been playing those songs for 50 years, 60 years in some cases. So that's just absolutely monstrous. I and would, it's gotten to you where you, where well, you I mean, are. Well, you know, yeah. It's gotten you, the fans. Well, they're not fans. No. No, they're friends. You have a lot of friends. <laughs> I don't have fans. That, that's, a, that's, a ridicu- that's, that's a ridiculous concept. You know, they are fantastic, but they're my friends. And I share it. I'm not, not giving them a gift, you know. We're, bo- we're both in, involved in the exchange. That's fantastic. It's a friendship. Because they relate to you. I relate to them. We all relate to each other. If we don't, the planet is in, going to be even in a worse condition than it is already. We must embrace each other. We all share the same secrets. We're all equal. <laughs> Get it together, idiots. Love yourself and you'll be loved. It takes a strong work ethic to make a living in the arts. Yes. Where does your drive come from, your work ethic? I think, that's a mo- I think it's a moral issue rather than an right. ethic. You know, that, that, that sort of uh, you know, brings up the whole concept of, of um, a job. You know, I just want to live my life straight. And that means if I'm on a set, I don't want, I want to be with those people. I want to collaborate with those people. And when you talk about discipline, you know, I'm, I'm not in the army. You know, I don't have to learn how to, how to shoot and kill and, you know, or the discipline of tennis or anything like that. I don't think that way. I, I, I just do it. I think if you think too much about it, you can see it on that screen, you know. I think the greatest actors are in the moment. Marlon Brando, James Dean, Joaquin Phoenix, people who are just operating in the moment. So when you talk about being, you know, disciplined and and a work ethic and all of that stuff, you know, lawyers can do that. Right. Well, I work with a lot of musicians and actors and... My deepest condolences to you. I know. They drive me nuts. Yeah, of course they um, do. <laughs> but I love them. Yeah, well, yeah, they've got to love themselves for it to work. But yeah. a lot of them, they, they have that dream. They want your career. They want to be a rock star. They want to be, you know, an actor, but they don't... To me, if you want something, you do whatever it takes to make it happen. Well, you know, here's the thing. I was as happy playing to 150, 200 people in nightclubs in my first band than I was at Live Aid. That's all I can tell you. Yeah, because you just love it. it. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking for fame, you're fucked. Because fame is the worst drug, way worse than heroin. Look at this poor kid, uh, you know, of Lisa's that just died. Lisa Presley, yeah. you know, you know, 27-year-old kid, gone. You know, and that, what was that little peep guy who was so talented? He was 20 years old, 21 years old, you know. So they, they, they anesthetizing themselves, and um, unfortunately that changes your consciousness and uh, ends your consciousness. But, I, you know, I, I really do believe that if I can just got a guitar and a, and a couple of people sitting on a couch, it'd be the same thing. I'd still be wearing makeup. Yeah, it's in your blood. (laughs) I've followed your career, and um, I have this little thing. Whenever I see you on television, I feel the need to say your name out loud and point to the television. That's fabulous. That's great. You pop up a lot. Yeah, pop up. Yeah, yeah. It's 150 hours of it. That's amazing. Yeah. So somewhere, 
there I am being a maitre d' or an assassin somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> in, you know, in Portugal, I'm a clown, you know, and in Greece, I'm a, a lover. What were some of your favorite experiences? All of them. All of them. Any horrible experiences? No, because um, difficult, yes. And I've learned from that. Yeah, the director was tentative and um, insensitive to his cast and crew. I'm the first person to say, get yourself together, man. You know, and if it, you know, because I, I've been done very well in my life, you know, in terms of being able to support myself and my family. So that is a great uh, conduit to be able to say, fuck you. If you don't treat your crew better, right. then I'm out of here. You can sue me and I'll sue you. So I'm not above anger. Uh, I'll confront anybody, you know, and that's what I've had to do my whole life. I don't know if you've seen the documentary, but that's what I had to do with a funky childhood. I had no parents. My father was in jail. My mother was a, a, a schizophrenic. And I was raised in these boarding schools. I had to watch my back, Diane, and I have done ever since. And fortunately, one hasn't to have these sort of uh, things happen to me. But when they do, look out. Yeah, that's something that um, I didn't know about you until recently is that you grew up with no parents. Yep. Like, who was responsible for you? Like, did you have a guardian or? God. God and attorneys. These days that would never happen, would it? <laughs> or is it maybe back then just because now I'm thinking you'd be in the foster system or? No, I was, my dad was rich. And when I was one, um, he had a lot of money and, and put the money down for my education, which was at these boarding schools from eight you meant to be there from 8 to 18. I left at 16. But so by the time he was in jail, which when I was like two or three, it, it was all set. You know, I went to Harrods to get my little uniform and I was looked after by the attorneys. And I would stay in the schools in the vacation periods. So for eight years, I never had a home. <laughs> did you get in trouble a lot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How how did that work with such a strict uh, school environment? I had to defend myself. The masturbatory homosexual pedophilia is exactly um, what you've heard. And I very careful. And I was. And, you know, I learned how to fight. Yeah. When people say, you know, I'm a street person, you know, you can be a street person in a British uh, boarding school too, you know. Yeah. Not restricted to the uh, downtown. And then when you went to London for theater school or acting school, what was that training like? Very interesting because at that time it was the mid-60s, so working class heroes were rock and roll stars. The aristocracy was nothing. You know, Mick Jagger could get a better table in a restaurant than um, Prince, Princess Margaret. In fact, he was probably stripping Princess Margaret at the time. Um, so therefore the world had changed because of the Beatles and the Stones and they created this incredible working class wit, wisdom, charm and brilliance the whole societal structure changed completely. I had been educated as a, you know, a privileged member of society and I had to reconfigure who the hell I was because the entire, you know, drama student, you know, Malcolm McDowell and Judy Geeson and all these young great actors were there in my drama school and I Leonard Whiting and I learned an awful lot, but I had to tone my uh, upper class nonsense down, which I was, you know, totally wanted to do anyway. So I was in the right place at the right time with the right cheekbones. 
To serve with love, is there any lessons learned from that experience in Sidney Poitier? Yes, of course. He remains the most uh, humble, noble, charismatic man I ever met to this day. And that's what changed my life. I just watched him for three months like a hawk. And I got a lot of my, my you know, knowledge of how to do it from him. Yeah. Angles, lighting, pace, tempo, power, confidence. All of those things I learned from Sydney. I picked up other things along the way. But that really was my drama school with Sydney Poitier. And that kind of brought you fame at such a young age. Yeah. So the fame part of it was hilarious because I always felt I was famous. <laughs> you know, I would walk into... From birth. Um, yeah, I just felt that way. I felt, I felt just glowing. I don't know why. I have no idea. But it was a blessing. The other funny story, though, is about that is when I did British TV and I was like 13, 14, and I would play a punk or something, whatever. When it aired, I would go out that next day dressed in the outfit that I was on telly <laughs> and walk around town. That's how egoic, <laughs> that's how desperate I was for love and affection. I would wear the same outfit, you know, and walk around and go, hey, you know, weren't you in that, that police show and, and you threw that brick through that window? And I go, yes, that was me. Excuse me, I have to run. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's all been a comedic to me. You know, I never, I've taken it seriously, but not really. What would have happened to you if you didn't get these breaks? How the hell do I know, Diane? <laughs> never think about no, it. No, of course not. It didn't exist. No, I only deal with what is, not what might have been. Right. You know, if I do, then I start thinking, well, I should have been Sting, you know, and, and I don't want to be Sting. Right. You're you. As much as I love Sting, I don't, I don't want to be anybody else but me. Right. right, And then yeah. from there, you became a rock star in Silverhead. And, yeah, um, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you looked like a rock star. Yeah, was, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's all I cared about. Yeah. I mean, you know, the band, we were 20. So, you know, and we did this band and it was so cool. Uh, and we had such a great time for two and a half, three years, whatever it was, two albums. And the two albums were not successful, like the Dolls and like the Velvet Underground. You know, we were very influential on the scene. The Pistols loved us when they were kids. And, you know, we, you know it was a very glamorous, but we were glamorous in the gutter. You know, our mascara we had worn for 10 days. You know, it wasn't like uh, showbiz. It was androgynous Oscar Wilde. You know, it was Aubrey Beardsley. It was uh, Velvet Poetry. Um, with Three Chords and Chuck Berry. You know, it was amazing. And we had the most incredible time, came to America, opened for everybody, Humble Pie, Deep Purple. And then, you know, we split up and I met Miss Pamela in LA and we got married and I moved to LA in 74 and I've been here ever since. Amazing. And you um, got signed to Led Zeppelin's label? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Zeppelin, you know, saw Silverhead. <laughs> and uh, and Jimmy was with my wife, Miss Pamela, prior to us meeting. So there was an incredible symbiosis there, really interesting vibe, you know, uh, connections. And, you know, Jimmy 
I remember we played a club in Birmingham in Northern England as Silverhead, you know, and we were just rocking. And the club had about 11 people in it, but four of them were Led Zeppelin. Right. Because they, they lived really close. Uh, Bonzo's farm was 10 minutes from the club. So, of course, we all trooped off to Bonzo's farm. And we spent the next three days <laughs> in, the, in his farm, uh, which was life-changing. You know, you hear Led Zeppelin in a room the size that you're sitting in right now. And uh, it was pretty amazing experience. When, we, when I got back to L.A. and I put Detective together, Jimmy was there. Zeppelin happened to be in town, and one thing led to another. Right. And he signed you, but then you had to kind of sit for a year? Oh, it's terrible. It's awful. You, you give a 24-year-old a million dollars, you know, what do you think is going to happen? With nothing to do. <laughs> because trouble nothing and do. do drugs. Except write songs. And, and we did. We wrote innumerable songs. Yeah. We, we, we didn't just sit on that money, but, you know, we were young and we had a pocket full of everything. And he wasn't there. And I think that that impetus uh, was impotent. And therefore, we didn't get in the studio. And by the time we did, it was, everybody was in a different space. You know, we made those records. I stand by those records today. They've just come out again. You know, Japanese labels have just had a detective moment, you know, and they always do every decade, you know. New people discover it. Yeah. I mean, I just got the masters myself. I've got the masters of all those records and I'm going to put them out myself. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. But it was heavy, you know. Robert's son had died. Um, shall we say that certain members were compromised, or, or, you know, with narcotics. So it was difficult, you know. And uh, Zeppelin ended around that time too. So it was, it was tricky. It was a very, very dark period. You also have not done any drugs since 1982? No, 81? 80, 81. Wow. 81, amazing, amazing blessing. You know, good heavens. Uh, and no relapses? Oh, fuck relapse. No, of course not. I wouldn't do something like that and then do it again. <laughs> you know you what act, I mean? You actually learned the lesson. Not everyone does. Well, I, you know, enough. It was unseemly. I mean, you know. That last year, I only used drugs and alcohol for like seven years and only abused them for about two. Right. And I went, whoa, no, 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 no. I can't be at this, uh, you know, a, a student of the demons. Okay. <laughs> you know, I've I, I got nothing to learn here. Do you think that and, um, musicians and creatives are more susceptible to becoming addicted to drugs and alcohol? Oh, I have no idea. No? I have no idea. No, I mean, you might as well say a bus driver. Right. Yeah, it's, just, it's human nature. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. If you're a bass player or a dentist, you can fuck up. You know, you don't have to be a particular breed, I don't think. I think the particular breed is um, this desire not to be yourself and to hide yeah, from the world. Yeah, I think that's it. And I don't want to hide. I want to do the opposite. And I find a lot of musicians, if they're in a band... And there's one guy that's like the addict. How do you deal with that when you're the sober guy? Fire them. Yeah. What if it's their band? Leave? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to be ballsy about this shit. 
you can't let money or anything else get in the way because you'd be miserable. It doesn't matter if you're living in, you know, a, a mansion. Look how many people have taken their lives living in mansions. Yeah. So it has to be from the heart. You've got to be enjoying what you're doing or then you're a liar. Since your mother had mental health issues, um, did you struggle with that throughout your life as well or no? I've, I've, I've never struggled. No. No, I just slip away if it gets too tight. But it's 99% of the time I'll just be there for you. Right. You know, I think to answer your question a little better, perhaps you want to pick it an answer. There's a fight there, and you want to be victorious, but there isn't a fight. You see, we're not, we're not fighting for this thing. We're just going to express ourselves and love ourselves enough to be loved. People can tell. Audiences and friends, as I call them, will, will know if they're getting the truth. You know, It's like if you're in a relationship, you know when it's over. But some people don't, don't ever acknowledge that, and they live in ang anger and pain for the rest of their lives. So you've got to be able to say, you know what, this isn't happening. Or, I love you so much. There's nothing other than those two things. Wonderful. I don't even know what to follow up that with. Well, there's no follow-up, you know, we just stay in the moment and we'll talk about one's, one's, one's mad career, you know, and it's been a really wonderful ride. I've, I've um, I learned a lot very early. You had to. So I've been <laughs> sort of, yeah, so I've been rowing that boat, you know, with no uh, considerable effort. It's been easy. You know, there's no ripples in the river and there's no tsunami and all of that, because that's all in your head or your soul, your mind. You know, we create storms. You know, a storm can be the most beautiful thing you ever saw. It depends how you look at it, how you look at your life. Do you accept it or do you not? Do you forgive your so-called enemies or do you not? It's all about forgiveness and acceptance, really, at the end of the day, isn't it? You know, if you hold a grudge against your wife and you marry somebody else and then the, then the new wife hates the old wife and the old wife hates the kids and the kids hate everybody. I mean, do you really want to live like that? You know, you have to be honest and say, look, it's not working, is it? Shall we go to therapy? Okay, let's try that. Let's do that. But you've got to work on it. You can't live in silence. Right. And so back to your lovely career, you did WKRP, <laughs> Scum of the Earth. That's yeah, I was so stoned. Oh, yeah. I, uh, that whole week, I was, I don't think I slept that week. But uh, the one story I'll tell about it is when I got the script, you know, because um, the writer was a fan of my music and so, you know, you wanna, so I read it and it was all ripped t shirts and safety pins and spiky hair. And I said, no, 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 suits, suits and ties, baby. <laughs> it's a lot funnier, you know, you go in there and as soon as you're throwing people out the window, that, that's a lot funnier. And he went, okay, Michael, that's good. Let's do that. Okay, that sounds good. So we did it and the audience went absolutely apeshit. And it was one of the greatest episodes they ever had. Well, because it's a memorable one. We remember it, you know? Yeah, it was funny, scum, fabulous. <laughs> so great. And then Peter and uh, Jimmy Henderson, great guys. 
and, and I became real good friends with Howard Hesseman, loved him. A brilliant man, brilliant comedian, great writer. So it was a very smart bunch. Hugh Wilson created that show, wrote that uh, episode. And, uh, and, 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 you know, too, Lonnie, I, I've uh, come across, you know, I did a thing with Burt Reynolds and, uh, when he was married to her, Lonnie Anderson. And that, it was beautiful. It was a great a success. And I learned a lot and I had a great time. End of story. Detective. It was Detective who did that. Right, right. And from there, did you just start getting these bit parts in all these TV shows? Well, they're not bit parts. Well, not bit parts, um, but Murdoch wasn't exactly a bit part. No, you know, I got an Emmy. You know, um, so a lot of the shows uh, I I would do, I'd have bit parts, but the majority, I would say, eighty percent of them were guest starring roles, right. um, and that was amazing. You know, I mean, Murdoch was five years of constant killing. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you, know, I, you know, I made a lot of friends. So a lot of directors said, look, do you want to come in for the afternoon and play the maitre d' in this particular show? What was it, Seinfeld? And I said, sure. You know, and they paid me a lot of money and I'd be in and out, you know, because I was always concentrating on recording and writing songs. So I was doing both at the same time. At one point I was in Roseanne, WKRP in Cincinnati and no, no. Roseanne show, Seinfeld show. I remember all doing it at the same time over a course of a few months and MacGyver wow. at the same time. It was in People Magazine. I, I worked constantly on different sound stages. I'd be shooting on one sound, sound stage, one show episode, and then I'd go to another sound stage and do that episode. Same time, back and forth. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. Well, it's like the and, dream for actors is to just be you know, constantly working. Yeah, I was constantly in demand. working. And as, as a result, with residuals from 150 hours of television, you know, I was in Melrose Place for two seasons. I was, you know, I was in a lot of shows. Yeah. And you get checks from Sweden for $3. It mounts up. <laughs> <laughs> so I like, the, I like the girly show. So, you know, Gilmore Girls, Melrose Place, Charmed. Yeah. And 21, yeah, 21 Jump Street. Yeah. Yeah, I love Johnny. I did the first episode of the season and the second season. And I, he was a huge, you know, he's an incredible guitar player, singer, Johnny Depp. Yeah. And, and I remember that we, you know, Steve Jones of the Pestors was my dear friend, and uh, we were in that band together, Check It Out. So he comes out, he came, I brought him up to me, uh, up to Vancouver to meet Johnny Depp. And I remember I was in my trailer with Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols and Johnny Depp playing guitar. And we were so exhausted, Johnny fell asleep. And Steve, who is a poet, a brilliant, brilliant man. Nobody knows just how brilliant this guy is. He couldn't read or write to, he lived with me and Miss Pamela. But he looked at Johnny and said, that's the most beautiful creature I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Yeah, and he was completely sincere. Yeah, he's very it was pretty. A, it was a beautiful moment. Wow. You know, hear from a sex pistol where you used to, oh, I am, <laughs> and Christ, you know. And it was this peace and this beautiful observation of Johnny, who, who now is, you know, is, is going through a, a lot of difficult things yeah. in his life. And that makes me sad. How did you get the power station gig? I was in this band, Check It Pass, as I mentioned with Steve Jones. We opened for Duran um, in San Diego. Um, and uh, Andy 
Taylor and John Taylor were in the wings and watching us, because it is Steve Jones yeah. of the Bissells and Clem Burke on drums from Blondie and Nigel Harrison from Blondie on bass and from Bowie's Tin Machine, Tony Sales on guitar. So it was a pretty important band for five minutes. So they were watching. Cut to I'm in Texas with Don Johnson. He's making movies, an old friend of mine, and we always have fun. And uh, uh, the phone rang in some obscure hotel in Marshall, Texas, and it was a promoter in New York who said, listen, MDB, I know your band broke up. There's a band that needs a singer. Would you come to New York and uh, you know, meet with them? And I said, who? And he said, I can't tell you. I said, okay, give me a, you know, a suite at the Carlisle Hotel and a white limo to pick me up at JFK. He said, okay. <laughs> so I got on the plane, got in the car, went to the office in Manhattan, went over to the 17th floor, go into an office. There's John Taylor and Tony Thompson sweating profusely and looking very nervous. They had six months booked for a tour. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars here at stake. Uh, we went to the power station studio. We took Robert's voice off the tracks. I got on the Concorde. I flew to London, no sleep, to meet with Andy Taylor because he was in London. So Andy, after eight hours of waiting, me in the studio arrives in a billowing marijuana smoke, you know, and two big bodyguards. And I sang I a verse and a chorus of Get It On, and he hits the control button and says, let's go shopping. I bought $20,000 of worth of clothes, Vivian Westwood, got back on the Concord, went back to New York, checked into the hotel. I'm in. Oh, this is exciting. Um, I'm putting a new outfit on that I just got in London. Don Johnson is in New York. We are planning on going to Chinois, the restaurant. I get a phone call. You're out. What? I'm out? What do you mean I'm out? Can I keep the clothes? You know. <laughs> well, that's important. <laughs> yeah. And they said, no, 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 sorry, you're out. Oh, devastation. Uh, Don and I go and eat. Lo and behold, John Taylor's at a table, six tables away from us. Don Johnson looks at me, looks at John Taylor, goes over to John's table and brings him out into the sidewalk and they talk. Ten minutes. Comes back into the restaurant, doesn't say a word to me. And we go back to the hotel and I'm just devastated. 7 a.m., the phone rings. You're in. I'm, I'm in? Does that mean I get to keep the clothes? <laughs> yes, that means you get to keep the clothes and you're rehearsing at noon. And what had happened was my manager and Robert Palmer's people had put together a vibe of Robert getting more money on the merchandising. The merchandising alone on those shows was so huge. I can't even give you the numbers. It's too embarrassing. Um, I was lost for, you know, three hours in my hotel. But then I found out we were back in and we started rehearsals. And then three days later, I was at Live Aid. Wow, that's, that's an impressive first gig. <laughs> No shit, biggest gig of all time. And just recently, everyone's posting about it because it's the anniversary of that amazing yeah, concert. Yeah, yeah it's uh, and I've done a, obviously a lot of interviews about that because it's the thirty-fifth year of that. You know, and it was a fascinating afternoon, you can imagine. But the real fascination was that we all stayed in the same hotel that night. Can you imagine? <laughs> anyone who's anyone is there. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. From Bob Dylan to Simon Lebon and back again. Yeah. Well, that's a lot to take on is that not only like, you know, 
Sting, everyone else playing Live Aid, but you're also in a brand new band that you've only been in for a week. <laughs> Three days. Was that very much intimidating? No, not at all. No? You didn't think about that? No. Easy. Easy. Learn the lines. Get a great outfit. Enjoy yourself. Yeah. Because you're a natural front man. Well, you know. The thing about Robert is he's so brilliant. And I knew him 10 years before Power Station. And we always called him Marvin Gaye because he was so funky and so R&B. I am not that, you know. Yeah. I could get a crowd going. Robert didn't want to do that. He didn't want to say, let me hear you say, yeah. You know, he didn't want to, he's not that kind of an artist, performer. Right. He's very, very, you know, inside and it's, it's, he's very difficult to penetrate. He's a brilliant songwriter, incredible voice. I mean, really, biggest fan. Um, you know, people say, well, they're awfully big shoes to fill. And I would say, I brought my own shoes. Yeah, it was, you brought something different to it. Yeah, rock and roll. And excitement. <laughs> Yeah, he wasn't a rock and roll singer. And because that band only had 10 songs, we did 30 songs live. So we did White Light, White Heat and, uh, you know, all sorts of different songs. Lou Reed, a lot of my songs. Obsession was number one all over the world. We did that, but like, you know, rocking. I mean, it was an amazing experience. And so you went on the tour. And what mm -hmm. happened after that? I collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> no, what happened after that? I did Murdoch within a few weeks. I, I did a record with Andy and Jonesy, uh, which uh, was a fabulous record. Tara Powerhorns, Jim Keltner on drums, fantastic. However, the label collapsed two weeks after its release, so nobody heard it. So I get a call from my agent saying, yeah, you know, there's a role of an assassin in MacGyver would you like to go and meet with them? And I said, of course, you know, and I did, and I got the gig, and um, it was a, just a one-off, uh, but they liked it, the audience liked it, and I did it for the next five years. And you just kept coming back. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're in the new one. Yeah. And uh, I haven't seen the new one. Is it the same character or similar character? No. no. Murdoch is now portrayed by David Desmalchin, who is absolutely fantastic and a great actor, a great writer. He writes his um, sort of horror comics. Count Crowley is his character. He's a, just an, really a, a brilliant man, and I love him. I play his mentor, Nicholas Hellman, and that's how they dealt with it because the fans just want to see me with a gun, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great and, and it's been such fun and you know one one used to go down to atlanta to uh, to do it and now of course one can't because of the this dreadful virus that is you know just killing too many people yeah everything's on hold right now the world's doing a bit of a reset yes and but, but we must realize that some rules were made not to be broken Wear the damn mask. <laughs> Wear the damn mask. Yeah. Exactly. So, but, you know, I work from home and therefore I do my three-hour radio programs every day, uh, Monday through Friday, and Little Stevens Underground Garage, Sirius XM Channel 21, and I love it. And uh, that's my job. And I'm writing a book, you know, this book of poetry. And um, that's very exciting. And I'm enjoying the, you know, 
the documentary being seen by so many. And, and it's so delightful to talk to you, Diane. And I got to run, but because um, I got to I got to work. Uh, you know, I have a I have a, we're going to do a socially distanced uh, songwriting session with my colleague Paul Ill, who is due any moment. Oh, fantastic! I, I'm so sorry not to have been here ready for you. Um, but, you know, it's, it's been a crazy time for me with the documentary up on Amazon Prime, which I'd love you guys to hear. Uh, you know, uh, it got sort of overlapped. So my deepest apologies. It's been a wonderful conversation. You're very smart. Yeah, it was wonderful talking to you. Well, absolutely, Diane, and I wish you all the luck in the world. Thank you so much. All right, darling. Okay. Bye. Bye. It was so great chatting with Michael. I'm such a fan. A friend. He had some choice words for musicians who grow to hate their own songs. That was a fun little rant he did. And uh, he said that none of the greats would have ever said that. And I looked it up. Whether you call them one of the greats or not, the list includes Robert Plant, Oasis, R.E.M., Madonna, Kurt Cobain, Radiohead, Bob Geldof, and more. They've all blasted their most popular hits. So it happens. Anyways, I highly recommend watching the doc, Who Do You Want Me To Be? And explore the fascinating life of Michael DeBar. Thanks for listening to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. Be sure to join the mailing list at dianefoy.com to gain access to exclusive bonus content, a weekly newsletter, and an invitation to our private Facebook group of purpose-driven performing artists and industry influencers.